Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast, I'm Matt Deacon. On today's show, it's MIPCON CAN, and no, we're not live from the beach, but we're still here to run you down all the TV gossip and things you need to know. Uh, also on the programme, misinformation and the rush to publish. How have journalists fared in their reporting of the Middle East crisis? Plus, the BBC cuts another continuing drama. Is there anywhere left for writers to hone their craft? And we discover the big story that everyone's talking about in Australian radio. All that, plus in the media quiz, we discover the true price of your IP. That's all coming up on this edition of the Media Podcast. In the news this week, the competition to produce the BBC's new format Destination X is down to the final two. That's according to Broadcast Magazine. Uh, Thames and 2.4 are in the running for the contract worth a chunky 20 million. Uh, the big pitch is on Monday. Cartoonist Steve Bell has parted ways with The Guardian after 40 years of service. It follows a cartoon the paper refused to run last week. Uh, this was in the aftermath of the initial attack on Israel. Uh, Bell subsequently published the cartoon on social media, uh, which led to a single email from editor Kathy Catherine Viner and that he was out. Netflix added over 9 million new subscribers, a sign that the crackdown on password sharing is starting to work. Uh, and with that new confidence, Netflix raising its prices. An ad-free account will set you back $17.99 a month. And a new documentary following the Wagatha Christie trial has got the media world buzzing. The latest Disney Plus original features Colleen Rooney and promises to reveal the circumstances leading to Rooney's infamous Instagram post that broke the internet. All the way to Colleen successfully defending herself in one of the UK's highest profile defamation cases of recent years. Now, joining me across the internet this week, we welcome two media experts whose defamation battles are always low-key. Uh, first up, it's Rebecca Cooney from Broadcast Magazine. Hi, Matt. How's it going? Uh, I'm very good, thank you. It's been MIPCOM this week. Uh, so I imagine you're running things whilst uh, the rest of the team are sunning themselves uh, in the south of France. Is that a fair assessment? I think so, almost. Uh, yeah, I've been, uh, we had press day this week, so I've been uh, basically making sure the magazine goes out. So I drew the short straw. But the consolation is I am told that it has been quite rainy in France. So, uh, you know, I think we can all be quite pleased about that. Um, but yes, no, I, I didn't get to go to Cannes, uh, unfortunately. But what is nice is that you look like you're on a beach because you've built a lovely sort of uh, pillow fort for us to record the show. So uh, thank you for that. And then <laughs> what, what have you gathered from, from your team? What's been going on? What's the big stories? So, yeah, I think it's been an interesting um, MIP um, because, you know, I think last time I spoke to you guys was just after, um, was actually at the Edinburgh TV Festival and it was quite depressing. It was quite kind of, you know, quite downbeat. Um, I think the feeling is that it's a little bit more upbeat. Things are feeling a little bit better because obviously it's international as well. 
But I think there are still a lot of signs that companies are feeling the pinch. Like one of um, sort of the things my colleagues were saying is that there were about 11,000 delegates. So it's a massive event. And there were lots of buyers and there was a very strong exhibitor turnout. But there were kind of fewer sort of heads of production companies than you'd usually expect and sort of fewer sort of entourage type people. So the producers, the talent, um, you know, and basically it costs a lot to go to Cannes. It costs a lot to get people there. It costs a lot to rent hotels, to feed them, to kind of do all the drinks and stuff. And I think you can kind of read that as a bit of a cost saving because it, it is just a pricey activity. So, you know, I think while it is upbeat, we are still seeing where there is a bit of a pinch. Uh, so a bit more workmanlike. And what, what are the big formats that everyone's um, being touted out at the moment? Well, I mean, that's the interesting thing because we did a um, uh, we do our, our hot picks uh, selection, which is essentially we get the distributors to send in kind of the shows that they think are the most interesting that they've got on offer beforehand. And we do kind of a pick of them. Uh, and my colleague, John Elms, the international editor, did a bit of sort of analysis of a sort of a breakdown of them. And one thing we noticed was that within scripted um, content, so sort of, uh, sort of dramas and comedies, comedy was really well represented. And it was also it was comedies and it was comedy dramas in, or even just light-hearted dramas like it just felt like everybody was looking for something a bit more positive a bit more cheerful but then actually I think one of the big success stories that's come out of uh of MIT this this year has been um The Long Shadow which is this um ITV drama new pictures sold by all three media about the um uh, the Yorkshire Ripper case or the Peter Sutcliffe murders and sort of the the victims of that and sort of looking at their lives and how they got to be there and I've seen the first two episodes of it it is brilliant it is in no way light or cheery. So I think it's really interesting that we've got that kind of big contrast that people went in going, yes, we're going to be selling these comedies. Everybody wants upbeat. And actually something that's done really well is this really hard hitting, quite miserable drama. Um, like it's it's brilliant, but it, it's not it's not fun. Well, perfect for the colder winter's nights. And alongside Rebecca, we welcome back broadcaster and writer Ian Dale. Hi, Ian. Hello. Good to be back. Uh, and thank you for squeezing us in before you uh, do your uh, LBC show uh, later on today. Uh, I imagine it's quite a high wire act at the moment uh, with all the news uh, from the Gaza Strip. Um, how are you finding it? Because uh, I'm sure your callers have quite split views. Say that. Whenever you talk about Israel or Palestine, you always get very entrenched views on both sides. And I usually at the beginning of each show, when you talk about the subject, Plea, make a plea for some calm and please recognise that there are other opinions other than your own. But frankly, I might as well save my breath sometimes, uh, particularly over the last two weeks. And it's it, it's a very emotionally draining subject to cover because obviously we've covered it every night, uh, sometimes for the whole three hours, but uh, usually for at least one, if not two. And um, it, it's... The other night we were on air when the bomb fell on the hospital in Gaza. And that was a real high wire act because I just, I don't know, sometimes you get a sixth sense that all is possibly not what it seems. And I decided not to go to a rolling format in the first hour. It happened 10 minutes before we came on air. And we were talking about whether the chant in the Palestine, Free Palestine March from the river to the sea, let uh, Palestine be free, whether that was an appropriate thing to do at the moment. And we, we did have one or two people say, why aren't you talking about the hospital attack? And I had to sort of explain, well, all we know is that people have been killed. We don't know how many. Um, Hamas is saying up to 500, but we can't confirm that. So what do you do? Do you open the phone lines up? just to allow people to vent their spleen on one side or the other? 
or do you hang on for a bit? So we decided to hang on for a bit and do it at nine. And by that time, the IDF had said, well, nothing to do with us, Gov. Um, we did open the phone lines up. And um, again, people were taking very entrenched positions because there are, there are people who will never believe a single word the Israeli government says, just as there are people who will never believe, in my view, quite rightly, a word that Hamas says. But I have to say, I think when this is all over, a lot of the media need to do some real soul searching on how they've covered this. Um, I couldn't believe my eyes when I saw the BBC reporting Israel missile attack. Well, at that point, no one knew. And you had Jeremy Bowen, who's a journalist I have total respect for, uh, say, well, I can't see how it can be anything else other than Israel, Israeli missile. Well, this, this is not what you want from your impartial state broadcaster. I mean, the New York Times also had uh, similar issues with a lot of their headlines uh, over those few hours as well. How much of this do you think is driven by what you referred to there earlier, you know, that this breaking news moment and this idea of the public do want to know what, what's going on? Uh, and you saying that from, from your callers as well, that it pushes broadcasters into, into making um, these, these quick decisions. Well, I suppose it's a natural human instinct. If you're a journalist, you, you want to be first with the news. But when it's, when it's a matter of life and death, when it concerns war and peace, you really do have to be very careful over what you're broadcasting. And, I mean, we at LBC, we, we are subject to the same Ofcom rules as anybody else, although I, as a presenter, I am paid, effectively, to have opinions. And I have expressed some very trenchant opinions during this. But when, when, you, when you've got breaking news, you revert to breaking news mode. You don't offer an opinion. You just allow your listeners to know, as far as you can tell, what the facts are. So we went twice to um, an Israeli journalist in Jerusalem who reported what the IDF was saying, what everyone else was saying. Um, and that's all you can do. I mean, we have no way of verifying ourselves what, what was involved in this, apart from the fact that clearly people have been killed. I mean, the verification's key, isn't it? And harder and harder to do. It's odd at the same time of sort of OSINT abilities, people looking at looking at imagery um, and online, sort of some crowdsourcing that is on the more positive end, uh, but also very aware that within within Palestine, there's hardly any reporters there. There's not many people who can provide independent views. If you take the Palestinian view, is that the Hamas view? Often, often it is. So again, that information out of there is very difficult for broadcasters as well, isn't it, Ian? Well, it is, particularly, I mean, we don't have the resources that someone like CNN or the BBC do. So we have to inevitably take our lead from them and from uh, Israeli journalists who, who are on the ground. And I mean, even by using the phrase Israeli journalists, people say, well, how can they be independent? Well, they actually can be and some of the best journalists. I mean, they're not, they're not apologists for the Israeli government. Um, so you have to make your judgment. I mean, very often when we have a breaking news story, whether it's a terror attack or whatever, Twitter can be a very good source of information. And I don't have to uh, get have three levels of permission before I say something. I use my judgment as to what I can trust and what I can't trust. And I've only, I think I've only fallen foul of that once where um, a fake Daily Mail account tweeted that I think that Daniel Radcliffe had COVID or something. It was like obviously doing the, and I read that out because it looked like a genuine Daily Mail uh, account. 
And but as soon as I found out it wasn't, I apologized and moved on. So you you can get caught out, but I, I think if you, if you've got reputable sources, I think you do have a duty then to bring that to your audience. And Rebecca, we've obviously seen that um, the violence is affecting Jewish and Islamic people all across the world, and that includes journalists, 17 killed so far in Gaza, um, and staff at BBC World Service being threatened as well. This has um, bigger implications kind of for everybody, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of talk in the TV industry about duty of care at the moment. And of course, that is when people are actually in war zones, that is sort of, you know, turned up to 100. It's, 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 an enormous and difficult thing for TV companies to be doing and trying to be doing that remotely. Um, and, and that's kind of the cost of having those sort of boots on the ground is, is these very difficult dilemmas. You know, I, I think this conflict has been showcasing sort of the best and the worst of, of British news media. You know, as Ian was saying, there is this rush to publish. There are these kind of um, impulses that we have to work with and work out, you know, because we've got kind of Twitter and we've got kind of people saying, well, when are you going to say something? And yeah, we have had some slip ups with, with sort of the BBC and with others. But then also, you know, Broadcasters are sort of saying they're getting really strong numbers for their news updates where they're putting it on YouTube. That's getting really good views because there is this hunger, there is this real desire to understand what is going on. I think the public are really aware that this is a knotty and complicated issue. And even where they do have very entrenched views, they want information, they want to find out what's going on and they want to get to the bottom of it. And I think, you know, there are places where the British news media is doing a really good job servicing that. But of course, the cost of that is having people on the ground and it's really difficult. Ian, how much of your job within your show is to explain? Are you kind of conscious that this is a super complex story for a lot of your audience to try and sum up where do you, where do you begin or, or is that not the role of the show? It, it is partly, um, but I make clear I'm not an expert. I have my views. I have a reasonable knowledge of the history of Israel and the, and the Palestine conflict, but I make very clear in fact, I remember when on the Saturday morning when, when it all started, when all the people were, were, were killed by Hamas, I knew obviously I would be covering it on the Monday. And I thought very carefully about, well, how much should I express an opinion or how much should I do on the one hand and on the other hand? And in the end, I thought, well, we are an opinion news station. I can't hide the fact that I do have an opinion on this. I am going to condemn Hamas. I am going to defend the Israeli position. But if the Israelis do things that I disagree with, I will also express criticism, which I have done in the past. But of course, as soon as you make one move to defend the Israelis, I mean, the, the wrath of Hades sort of falls on, on your head. And I'll be quite honest, the last, well, 11 days now, I think have been probably my most uncomfortable in 13 years of doing this job because the, the Twitter abuse... The texts that come in, and I, I see every text that comes into the programme live on air. I've actually thought about switching it off so I don't see them. Because I think it, your natural in, instinct is if someone makes an accusation against you that's totally unfounded on a, on a text live on the show, your natural instinct is to defend yourself and say, well, no, that's not the case. This is what I said and this is what I mean. But you've got to remember, that's only one person. They don't necessarily represent anyone else. And uh, that that night of the um, rocket falling on the hospital, I remember being on the train going home, and I was actually uh, I was feeling really emotional. And I, I'm not somebody who has ever suffered from any sort of depression or mental health issues. 
But I did think to myself, well, this is really affecting you. And you've got to be really careful about that because if it, if it gets too overwhelming, you're not going to be broadcasting at your best. And yet I know we have to cover it every night. I mean, in, in an hour and 40 minutes, I'm going to be covering this letter that 2,000 actors and celebrities have written, um, basically slagging off Israel and um, defending everything that happens in Palestine. Now, I know what's going to happen there because I'm going to have a go at these ridiculous lovies who haven't even mentioned the word Hamas. I'm going to have a go at Private Eye over their front page, which I know is a satirical magazine, but I also know that over its history, Private Eye has a history of, shall we say, being fairly sceptical about Jews. So I know that I'm heading for a programme that I suspect by the end of it, I'm not going to have enjoyed very much. And, and yet, if I don't enjoy it, I can't, I can't project that through the microphone because I want... I don't necessarily want the audience to enjoy a programme like this, but they, they, they've got to listen to it thinking they're getting something out of it. Do you think some of the social media sort of chat and responses is about trying to chill uh, discussion uh, and sort of close off the discussion as well as people just putting forward their views? Yes, because, I mean, effectively, if you take the opposite view to me, uh, you, I mean, I've had, tw I've had one person saying that I want a genocide against Palestine. I want all Palestinians to be killed. Now, I don't know what provokes somebody to think that that would even cross my mind, because I can assure you it does not. Um, I don't want innocent Palestinians to die in the same way that I don't want innocent Israelis to die. Um, but I have found myself having to explain that in war situations, civilians all are always killed. It's just the way of war. And however you express that, it sounds callous. I had a lady uh, on the line the other day having a real go at me for using the, word, the phrase collateral damage, which I did caveat. And I, I, before I used the phrase, I said, I, don't, I hate this phrase, but I can't think of another one. There are, there's always collateral damage in times of war. It happened in the Falklands War, the Second World War. Um, if you think that that is so abhorrent that you can't sanction any form of warfare, that makes you a pacifist. And most people are not pacifists. They think that if, if, if you've been attacked, you have a right to defend yourself. Well, sticking with news, but moving to print media, uh, the Barclays are back. Well, sort of. This is the former owners of the Telegraph Media Group have tabled an offer valuing their old company at a billion pounds. Um, Ian, I was just looking at the Telegraph's profits uh, last year, and they were 39 million quid. In an industry that's that's tough to, to make a success out of, the Telegraph haven't done so bad with some of their, their subscription, but it's still 39 million. Um, I mean, the Telegraphs have paid for it once, and now they're looking to pay for it again. Why why are they obsessed with their old their old title? Um, I should declare an interest here that I write for the Telegraph, so I, I haven't got any specific insight into this story. I Look... I think that there's the, the, the emotional attachment that the Barclays clearly have to the Telegraph is quite strong. And I'm, I'm sure there are lots of other examples through history where people have gone back and bought the company that they, they previously owned, but for whatever reason then had to uh, sell. I think this is going to be very interesting how it turns out. I've got no idea whether the Barclays will succeed. Um, it doesn't seem to be a huge amount of interest 
uh, elsewhere, from what I can gather, in, in buying the Telegraph. But you're right, they've done very well in getting extra subscribers of late. I think they've outdone the times on, on that. And they, have, and they haven't got a radio station to, to <laughs> attract subscribers. And, and the Telegraph, I mean, it is, whether, whether you're a Telegraph reader or not, it's part of the newspaper firmament. I mean, it, it, it's almost unthinkable that a newspaper like the Telegraph would not exist. And if it didn't exist, someone would have to invent it. How, how important is it just from being a right-wing trophy? And obviously there's the, the GB News founders that are interested in it as well. Uh, Rupert Murdoch is after The Spectator. How much of this actually isn't about business. It's about having uh, a position in the political world. I think that is part of it. There are lots of rich people in the world who like to have a foot inside of the political camp. I used to run Backpack Publishing, which Michael Ashcroft was, was and is, still is a major shareholder in, but I think he's a 100% shareholder now. Uh, and he, he likes to be part of the political conversation and sees owning things like conservative home, politics home, Backpack as a way of being involved in politics. Um, Rupert Murdoch, obviously, is very, very similar. So I don't think that's, that's a bad thing. I mean, you, you still have to make a business wash its face, though. I mean, nobody like Rupert Murdoch or Michael Ashcroft are going to want to continuously pour money into uh, companies that, that lose it. The Telegraph is profitable. It has been profitable. The Spectator has done really well under Fraser Nelson's editorship. So it doesn't surprise me at all that Rupert Murdoch would be interested in that. But there's a part of me that would that doesn't want Rupert Murdoch to buy it because I think it the Spectator's always been seen as quite an independent voice. And no matter who, who has owned it, no matter who has been the editor, it, it will go its own way. It will plough its own furrow. Uh, Rebecca, when we look at some of the money behind some of these bids, uh, it seems to be coming from the, the Middle East, doesn't it? Yeah, no, it does. And I just, yeah, I think it's it's really interesting. Like, as we were saying, it's it's profitable. Is it a billion pounds profitable? Like, is it worth it? I, I, I don't know. I couldn't say. But I think, yeah, it is really interesting that kind of we've got this investment we've got this uh these kind of um finances based in Abu Dhabi um I, I mean I wonder if we're going to end up with a kind of um football stadium type thing where you know football team type thing where people are like oh who's taking the news to control the newspapers who knows um it's a really interesting one to watch particularly because you know their their core audience is aging you know and there is this kind of issue about how are they going to appeal to a fresh audience and how are they going to do that in the future and I think yeah and actually um Ian was saying about the radio station they don't have a radio station they do have some very good podcasts that have done really well um so, you know, maybe they are going to be able to appeal to that youth audience. Maybe that's what the extra kind of money from Abu Dhabi is going to, going to be prioritising. But, um, yeah, it'll be an interesting one to see. Uh, well, just before the break, um, uh, two bits of news, really, about kind of TV changes. Uh, the long-running soap Doctors has been axed by the BBC due to what it called superinflation. Uh, and Channel 4 have just announced the cancellation of Steph's Pack Lunch uh, three years after the programme first came on air. Um, Rebecca, that's quite big news. These are, these are shows with a lot of output, aren't they, that are suddenly that are suddenly stopping? What's behind it? They're shows with a lot of output, um, and particularly with Doctors. You know, we think of these things as being quite low-budget, 
right soaps. And certainly they are compared to, say, Game of Thrones or The Crown or kind of really big, you know, the TV budgets for dramas have gone up and up and up in the last few years because we've just been, had this kind of, the streamers have come in and we've had this kind of, this this sort of, you know, arms race of quality. So we think of these things as being quite low budget. It's still expensive to make a TV drama. It's expensive to make a continuing drama that's always on. And inflation has just made it more so. And the BBC is on a fixed budget. So they've just kind of said, look, we can't afford to keep doing this. You know, interestingly, both these shows are daytime shows. People kind of aren't watching TV in the daytime as much as they used to be. Our viewing patterns change. We're not watching linear in the same way, right? Like you used to watch these stuff, this stuff because it was on if you were at home. Actually, if you're at home, you can put Netflix on, you can put iPlayer on, you can put Channel 4's own, um, you know, uh, uh, their platform is also called Channel 4, helpfully. But, um, you know, you don't need to watch linear in the same way. So I just don't think they're getting the audiences. I mean, I think where the real tragedy of this is um, for, for Doctors is that it is this show that has kind of where many people have cut their teeth it's been running for more than 20 years and it, these types of soaps these dramas are where people go to learn their trade whether they're writers whether they're directors whether they're producers and you know uh, at Edinburgh TV Festival Sally Wainwright who wrote Happy Valley which is like this hit show was sort of crediting her start getting her start on Corrie you know there are these kind of these shows are really really good and for that sort of thing for people to learn and keep doing it and keep improving um, you know, the, the, the 2018 report from Direct UK found that doctors had the highest percentage of directors of colour of any continuing drama. And, you know, directing is an area that traditionally has been quite white, been quite male. We haven't had that diversity. It is this incredible training ground. Um, and, you know, that, that's a real shame that that's been lost. Um, and similarly with, you know, Pack Lunch, um, you know, that's in Leeds. And it was one of the kind of best examples of TV channels trying to move out of London, trying to invest elsewhere. And they've, you know, they've had to, they've had to give it up and they've had to shut it down. So I think that is, you know, you want that, those kind of those jobs there so you can be training the local skills and talent and you want it to stay there because otherwise those people are going to be out of jobs. They're going to leave the industry or they're going to move to London. Uh, Ian, um, it, it is bad news for the regions, isn't it? I mean, it, this for Channel 4, particularly Steph's Back Lunch, was a big investment in their in their Leeds HQ. Doctors comes uh, from the BBC in the West Midlands. Um, is it sort of desires meet financial reality? I'm not sure we know the real reason that Steph's Back Lunch has been cancelled. It could be budgetary. I mean, I, I, I remember the one time I've been on it, I couldn't believe the number of production staff that, that were sort of running around the building. It seemed to be totally uh, overstaffed. I think it's actually a, quite a good show. I mean, quite a, a good contrast to what else is on at the time. And I think they, they've, in audience terms, I think they've actually done all right. I mean, the, the, the gossip this afternoon is that Steph McGovern's going to be one of the new presenters on this morning. Um, maybe that's the reason because you you couldn't really change it from Steph's pack lunch to anyone else really. I mean, mm. If she left mm. the program, it it would have to be at. So I mean, whether that there's any truth in that, I don't know. I'm I'm just promoting gossip, really, Matt. Well, that's that's some that's some, that's some brilliant gossip, <laughs> yeah. and we're going to ponder that uh, whilst we take a break. Uh, more media news <laughs> after this. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. 
burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And Rebecca and Ian are back with me for some more stories. Um, over to Australia, where the largest radio group, ARN, has made the bid for the second largest, SCA. Um, Ian, the Australian radio sectors are pretty competitive, even more so than maybe the UK. But I, when I saw this story, it was a bit like if Global merged with Bauer. Uh, can you imagine what that would be like in central London? I think I'll plead the fifth on that, on that one. <laughs> um, you're right, though. I- I remember when I first joined LBC, um, I went to Australia for three weeks and I broadcast my show from a very gaudy pink radio studio where it was in a shopping centre where people could actually watch you. And it was like five o'clock in the morning. And um, I couldn't understand how when this country, I mean, it still really only has one phone in radio station, why in Sydney at that point, there were 11 of them. So obviously it's very competitive. You think, how can one city have 11 when London, I mean, you, you've got one or two stations that do a bit of phone in, but only one that does it the whole time. You think, how can that be? So I've always been fascinated by the Australian media scene because it is so different to here. Uh, well, it's obviously a lot of it's driven by money. Um, it is ARN sort of getting a chance to sort of fix their second competitor and sort of swap in the good assets uh, over to them. I thought what was interesting, Rebecca, was that they said that if the deal goes through, they would take uh, SCA's podcasting arm, which is a thing called Listener, and they would merge it with their podcasting thing. They use, they use iHeartRadio to do theirs into a new kind of joint venture. And it was sort of saying, look, if, you, if we're going to try and beat the big boys in America, we have to really work together on this um i mean this is something that, that companies have to sort of work through the sort of the the analog background still makes the money but they've got to come up with something that works in the digital future yeah i think exactly that and i think that makes a lot of sense um i know that's something you guys have talked about on the show previously that kind of there was a lot of money in podcasting initially there was a bit of a boom and now it's it's sort of rebalancing like there is going to be money in there but it's not going to be kind of is that more sort of realistic money it's you know and i think kind of consolidating working together having these big platforms as you say there's so there's so many huge companies coming out of america with these offering these 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 kind of you know these podcasting deals and actually a lot of those originally were attached to radio stations as well um so i think it is it's going to be really really interesting to see what they do and and yeah that it is again it is that kind of linear versus um sort of on demand that we get in um tv as well right that kind of there is probably still a place for linear and it is making money but 
you know, people are also demanding this on-demand thing and it's trying to balance those two, I think is, is, is always a really interesting debate. Uh, Ian, obviously global players are really important uh, part of, of what Global talk about um, on their radio stations and, and the investment they're putting into it. Uh, you've got your own podcasts on there too. Um, how different do you see the, the two jobs of, of your your podcast output versus your, your live output? Well, it's, it's very different in many ways. I can do things on the podcast that I can't do on the radio show. So um, my two main podcasts, one I do with Jackie Smith, former Labour Home Secretary, called For The Many. And we, we started this in November 2017. And it, it's kind of, if people haven't listened to it, it was basically we created Alastair Campbell and Rory Stewart. Um, it, it's that kind of format. So one from the right, one from the left. We have quite a lot of laughs in our podcast. Um, we, we subtitle it Politics, Media, Gossip, and it is very gossipy and very smutty and filthy from time to time. And people don't expect people in the political world to be particularly filthy, but we have our moments. Um, and I, I can't do that sort of thing on the radio show. It just wouldn't, it wouldn't work. And the interview podcast that I do, All Talk, that, that stemmed out of my Edinburgh Fringe show. And I can do long-form interviews in, in a way that... I mean, I can do longer form on LBC in a way that I probably couldn't on other radio stations, but it's very rare that you do an hour-long interview. On the podcast, I did one with Neil Kinnock a few months ago that was two hours long. Never intended it for it to be two hours long, but he was just so brilliant. I thought, well, what's the point of stopping it if it's, it's, it's really interesting? And I've never had a single person complain about a podcast being too long. Well, when we first started For The Many... Um, people in the know supposedly said, oh, you should do it 20, 25 minutes because that's the average length of a commute. Absolute bollocks. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're doing entertaining stuff and informative stuff, people will listen to it. And if they don't want to listen to it, they don't listen to the end. But I, in, in six years of doing it, I've never had anyone say, can you please shorten them? And I mean, we've done some. The average length is probably 75 to 90 minutes, but we have done one sort of two and a half hours. Um, you don't do that all the time, but if, if there's a big news week, you want to talk about the stuff that's in the news. And during COVID, we, we made it twice a week. And I've had so many people say to me, and I thought this was really weird to begin with, you helped us through COVID. And when, when, you, when a new podcast dropped, we knew that we were going to have a laugh, and, we, and there weren't many laughs during COVID. I think with podcasts, it's a bit like bit like I remember Five Live being back in the day, the sort of 10 o'clock programme with Richard Bacon or um, Anita Arnold or Fee Glover. You felt you were part of a club. And with podcasts, I think it's very much like that. There's something very intentional about a podcast where you, you, you have to press play twice. So you, the, the number one where you subscribe to a show or follow a show, and then you have to choose again to press play. And I think that that intention is is very important where you know, a lot of radio is about resetting things because people are kind of in and out at different times rebecca that's exactly what i was going to say i think there's something about podcasts where people have, in, you, have invited you into their space to talk to you right rather than um you know uh, you know when you put the radio on you've okay you choose to put the radio on but it's kind of whatever's on and it's being beamed at you whereas the podcast there is a little bit of a kind of a i've picked you guys out I want you guys to come and be in my kitchen while I'm doing something else or while yeah. I'm driving or whatever. And and there's something about that kind of, yeah, I think, as you said, it's it's very intentional. As long as the content's good, I will want more of it. You know, I've had the same advice, Ian, where people have told me, oh, it's going to be 25 minutes. And I love a long podcast. So, yeah, I completely mm. agree. And I think also it's much more personal. Uh, I think of radio uh, where... 
I, I'll get stopped in the street sometimes and, and people greet me like an old friend. They've never met me before, but because I'm in their ears every evening, um, they see you as the friend that they've never actually met. I think podcasts are different to radio. And I think the, the mistake that so many people make is that they think they're making a radio program. Well, they're not. People forgive a bit of rough and readiness on a podcast and they, they're not being talked at they're being talked to. And I think there's a very distinct difference. And that there, are, there are too many radio programs where you have the presenter almost pontificating mm -hmm. and with a subliminal message, well, I'm the clever one here. I'm imparting my knowledge to you so you can be clever too. And I don't think people like that. And I think podcasts are very, very different from, to that. Uh, okay, there's just time for the media quiz. Uh, this week it's entitled MIPCOM.com. Uh, as you all know, before you announce a TV show at MIPCOM, you should buy the domain name. Very important for your big new brand. So we've picked out a few shows that have yet to do that. All you need to do is guess how much the domain would currently cost to buy it. Matt, can I just tell you, I, I, I've never heard of MIPCOM, so I'm at a great disadvantage here. You don't, you don't have to worry. You've just got to think. I don't like, know how much the domain names are going to be. Uh, so I, I name a TV show and you've just got to guess what the, how much you think the domain would cost. You'll pick it up as you go. Uh, there's three rounds. Closest wins. Let's play MIPCOM.com. So number one, uh, Altitude TV has announced a reboot of the children's series The Wombles. But how much would it cost to buy TheWombles.com? Rebecca, your first bid. Actually, it occurs to me, I don't know how much a domain name costs anyway. <laughs> Let's go for, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for half a million. It's a big, it's a big brand. Okay, it's a big it's, brand. I'm going to go for half thing. a million. It is the Wombles after all. Ian, thewombles.com, what would yeah. you pay for that? I'm going to underbid and say 499,000. <laughs> oh, he's playing, he's playing the game. Um, well, uh, you're, you're, you're both over. Ian, you get the point. It was $7,500, seven $7,500 to pick up the Wombles.com. Is that all? Well, that's very reasonable, um, isn't it? Yep. And if you want to outbid... Should we club together and buy it in? If you want to outbid Altitude TV, you can, you can do it now. Uh, right, number two. Um, the BBC has teamed up with Japanese broadcaster Nippon TV to produce Koso Koso, a game show that sees celebrity secret agents prank unsuspecting contestants to win a cash prize. Uh, but how much is it to buy KosoKoso.com? Ian? Um, 75,000. Uh, Rebecca? Uh... Quite a big brand in Japan. Uh, I'm going to go for 500 quid. Uh, well, I, I like how much, how much thought you're putting into it. You are closest. It's $3,600. A bargain. Uh, Ian, have you ever been asked to take part in a, in a prank show? Would you do it? Depends Maybe. what the taking part meant. I, I was <laughs> vaguely approached to do uh, celebrity dancing on ice once. Um, Let's put it this way. The discussions didn't go beyond that initial <laughs> approach. How, mu how much would it take to, uh, to get you onto the, uh, onto the ice? I, my knees couldn't stand it, so <laughs> that, that would be no amount of money. They tell, apparently, you have to commit to lifting someone, if you're a bloke, lifting someone above your head. And I thought, there is no way that I'm <laughs> going to be able to do that. So uh, uh, there are one or two... Uh, similar shows that I might have considered doing, but uh, that's the only one that's slightly been offered. Rebecca, it's a, it's a good question. Any reality TV show that if offered, you would you would take? Honestly, would I fancy a, a month in the jungle? Obviously, I'm not a celebrity, but, you know, would I, would I fancy a month in the jungle? Yeah, maybe. 
Um, I kind of think like, yeah, learning a new skill or something like that. Or like race around the world looks fun. Um, uh, there's one there's one that Channel 4 does where they literally just leave you alone in the wilderness in Canada with a, with a TV camera and just go and some bear spray. Um, and <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe I'd do that. Um, yeah, I, I used those- to use that argument about not being a celebrity. But then someone said to me, yeah, but most of the people in the jungle aren't actual celebrities. I've never, I've never heard of most of them, so how can they be celebrities? Remember, one of the people that did very well on Celebrity Big Brother was a non-celebrity. Uh, right, uh, uh, final question, question number three. Uh, the showcase of Sean Penn's new war comedy, Court, uh, in sort of mash titles, C-star, A-star, etc., uh, was cancelled this week because of the ongoing conflict in the Middle East. Uh, but how much would CourtTV.com cost, uh, Rebecca? I'm going to go for five grand. Five grand, Ian? Six grand. Uh, it is 2,600. So, Rebecca, uh, you win that one. Uh, you win the competition. No. And you also win our new domain name TV brand business. You get to lead that for us to, to make some money for the podcast. Oh, um, amazing. Uh, Lucky me. Uh, <laughs> thank, thank you both. Uh, before we go, how can people keep up uh, with what you're up to, Ian? Um, I'm on LBC 7 to 10, Monday to Thursday. And uh, I'm on social media in all sorts of forms at Ian Dale. That's I-A-I-N-D-A-L-E. And Rebecca, how can I keep up with your work? Uh, I'm at uh, broadcastnow.co.uk. So yeah, I write for Broadcast Magazine. And uh, I'm on X, Twitter, if anyone's still using it, uh, at Rebecca K. Cooney. Uh, Lovely. Thank you both. And that's it from us today. Remember to follow the media podcast to get new episodes every week, either on the app you're using right now or just head to podfollow.com slash the media podcast. And if you really love what we do, please consider joining our Patreon. It allows us to invest in great guests and great features. Uh, Do it now and you'll also get access to loads of bonus content too as a thank you. Patreon.com slash media pod. Patreon.com slash media pod. My name is Matt Deegan. The producer was Ollie Pitt with support from Matt hill it was a rethink audio production and i'll see you next week planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.